0: This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the Stars Limited series, Mary and George. Julianne Moore and Nicholas Galitzine star in the scandalous true story of Mary Valliere, who molded her beautiful and charismatic son to seduce King James I. Quite the moment in history. See why the Hollywood Reporter calls it a delicious drama. Mary and George, for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all eligible categories. Mary and George is now streaming on the Stars app.
1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: You're listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by my dear friend and THR's fantastic chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Hi, Dan. What up, Leslie? Oh, whoa, well, the executive carousel, how I missed it, so.
2: <sighs> I mean, last week, it was really just a week ago that we did a podcast where I believe in our intro, I said that it was actually a slow week, and it this was. This is your
0: fault, Dan. You I, jinxed I, us.
2: I can accept that I made the whole point about how it was actually a slow week and that was part of why we had our friend of the five Alan Seppenwall on for two segments because it was a light week and then promptly several major news stories actually broke on Thursday night into Friday morning so we we didn't get to discuss uh Trevor Noah leaving or the community movie and maybe we'll touch on those things today
0: yeah we definitely will and also I somehow forgot to mention that Fox CEO Charlie Collier departed for Roku like Three weeks, two weeks ago. Yeah, the, like, <laughs> that sort of wow. got lost
2: in the shuffle. <laughs> that that definitely, at some point, could have been a, a segment. But yeah, so so last week we we kind of were in need of segments, and this week we had to actually cancel TV's top seventeen. This week we had to actually cancel a showrunner because you were so busy doing high-profile, high-powered analysis on uh, on THR, so you should definitely, everyone should check that out online, but also listen to it on the podcast. But if you can do both, that's the best of all possible Yeah, please
0: worlds. click on those stories. That, that would be really nice. It's, it's. I'm flattered that y'all listen to the show and seem to like the show. I, I hear from a lot of people in the industry, and some who I don't expect to listen, who are avid uh, friends of the five, and... And that's always really, really nice. But also, please click on those stories that I write. (laughs) Anyway, um, yeah. So welcome to episode 188. Um, I'm running on like six pieces of candy corn. And yeah, it's been a busy one. So let's get started where we usually do with headlines.
2: Number one,
0: Leading off, Chuck Lorre, who has seen his CBS footprint shrink from four shows to two this season, has set his next series at HBO Max with Sebastian Manicalzo set to star in How to Be a Bookie, for the streamer, Nick Bacay, who the guy who voiced Salem in Sabrina the Teenage Witch, yes, really, I am not joking here, who has also worked with Laurie on Young Sheldon and Bob Hart's Abishola, is co-writing the script with Chuck.
2: Interesting. And you'll hear a little bit more, not from Chuck Laurie, but about Chuck Laurie in uh, two segments. So pay attention if you're a Chuck Laurie fan or a fan of Chuck Laurie things. In other new series orders, and this has been gestating and permutating and other stuff for a while uh remember that remember that fraser sequel well it's officially a go at naturally paramount plus sure why not uh kelsey Grammer will return to his emmy winning and much beloved role uh i certainly watched about half of Frasier during the pandemic um it holds up fairly well so you know i think i if-
0: watched a good chunk of it while it was on in first run
2: I watched, you know, I watched it a fair amount in first run. I definitely didn't watch every episode. And then I definitely didn't finish it during the pandemic, but I, I watched it. It's a I mean, it was always it was always a smart, well-made intellectual farce uh, of the kind that really you don't see very much on broadcast television today. And naturally, it still plays as that, uh, even if Kelsey Grammer might annoy people on other levels elsewhere. NBC continues to greenlight new shows as part of, you might have heard about this several times, ongoing commitment to year-round development. Uh, they've given a series order to a new comedy from Mike O'Malley of Survivor's Remorse fame and starring 25 Men favorite John Cryer. And as Dan mentioned at the top
0: of the the show, some big news broke after we recorded last week. Trevor Noah stunned Paramount executives with his announcement September 29th on air that he would leave The Daily Show after a seven-year run. Sources say Noah recently extended his option to remain in the hosting chair for an additional two years with executives and talent at the show learning of his decision When he made the announcement live on air, he's expected to stay on through year's end as Paramount now has to find a new host for The Daily Show on Comedy Central, as well as one on CBS to replace James Corden at the helm of The Late Late Show. He's leaving, of course, next year. So lots going on. We did a big analysis. Lacey Rose and I did a big analysis on the state of Comedy Central. And here's a spoiler alert. If you look at your programming guide and you check their schedule, their 24 hour schedule for about a two week span, you're going to see lots of repeats of the Big Bang Theory and Futurama and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and, and one or two others. But the fun thing is, is that none of those shows are actually owned by Paramount. So yeah, it's just, yeah, it's not what it once was. And you look at Paramount Plus and and what's available from the Comedy Central label As one source told us, there's more there's more Comedy Central on HBO Max with Southside and the other two. So there you have it. State of Comedy Central TV Guide Edition.
2: That I mean, I think and I think at some point the what the bleep is up with Comedy Central segment is one that we're going to have to do. And I think it's a a good question. As you just mentioned, the number of original programs on Comedy Central has dwindled dwindled and dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. And it's interesting. I definitely saw a lot of people speculating that, you know, maybe Comedy Central just wants to do away with The Daily Show entirely. And if they were to do that, that would be, that would certainly make a statement.
0: (laughs) And that's not going to happen. I did some reporting there, too. Spoiler alert. And it's not going anywhere, even with the the idea that The Daily Show could be a first run original on Paramount Plus. Absolutely not. So it's going to continue to run in first window on Comedy Central and be available to stream. What is it? that night of or the next day on Paramount Plus, as well as Pluto, which is the free streamer.
2: I will be interested in seeing what they're what they do. I'll be interested in seeing what Trevor Noah does next. I had sort of floated him as a hypothetical replacement for James Corden. But even then, I'd acknowledge the whole time that it was not, at least on its surface, really a promotion, barring a lot of other additional elements. Like, again, as I said, it would have to. That
0: Critics Notebook was fantastic,
2: Dan. It would it would have to be they would have to sweeten that deal in so many different ways to make it worthwhile. It would have to be like, OK, but also a major production deal. Also, you would only he have already to do has this. a
0: production deal with yeah. Paramount where he's going to continue to be an executive producer, which is something that, that as Lacey Rose reported in her story about what's next for Trevor, he wants to continue to be an active exec producer and not just kind of barely maybe a passerby on set here and there. But he's also going to continue his extremely luc- lucrative touring. Business where it just sounds, you know, like it, what, what's amazing, as Lacey pointed out, is you know, he made the announcement on air Thursday, had lunch with Chris McCarthy, who was his direct boss at Paramount on Wednesday. Chris McCarthy had no idea that was happening, then announces on air that he's leaving, and then Friday night goes up to Toronto and to do a stand up special that he's filming. Guess what? Not for Comedy Central, not for Paramount Plus, but for Netflix. So, if that doesn't really speak to what's next for him. pretty hard-pressed to find out what does. I would would
2: guess that probably he's going to try to find a way to combine those things. Like, I would not be surprised if he went in the direction of, I don't know, a Kamau Bell style, traveling the country, bringing people together. That way he could go somewhere, bring people together, have a cultural conversation, and go work a comedy, (laughs) a large comedy arena event somewhere. And maybe act
0: as well, not just executive producing stuff, so
2: it will be it'll be interesting it leaves a big gap and and it really just continues this this huge overhaul of the late night space so you've got Corden leaving you've got uh you've got Trevor Noah you've got the previous not not voluntary departures of Samantha B and Deesus and Mera well Deesus and Mera I guess was voluntary it was just not long term planned in advance but yeah it it will be interesting to see. And don't forget, NBC
0: said farewell to Lily Singh and is just not going back to the that late, late format. So what is that? The triple late? I can't remember.
2: I almost always, in fact, forget that that was the thing that happened.
0: Yeah, so does the audience. Hey,
2: anyway, as I already mentioned, hashtag six seasons and a movie and whatnot. It's officially happening as Peacock announced late last week that Community is finally going to get that movie i guess if you want to call it that a uh, continuation on peacock so if you want to call it a movie that's fine dan Harmon is going to return to write it and six of the nine original stars are set to return uh and the three who aren't are probably the people that you would expect chevy chase obviously donald glover he's a busy man and event nicole brown of course left the show uh for personal reasons before the end as well so yeah, one of the one of the writers from the show uh, <laughs> reassured, tried to reassure me on Twitter that all effort was going to be taken to bring some of those people back. I, I can't imagine all effort is going to be taken to bring Chevy Chase back. Yeah, I was going to say he's
0: probably <laughs> the, the one that I least expect to come back.
2: And I don't know if necessarily effort is going to be what it's going to take to get Donald Glover back. Um, I don't th- but- I
0: think it's I think it's a combo of time first and then money because life is short and he's not the star of that.
2: He's not, but he also still is important to the DNA of the show, even if the show continued without him. Uh, But I expect they'll find a way to get both Event Nicole Brown and Donald Glover back in some capacity. In addition, uh, Paramount has also acquired the non-exclusive streaming rights to the full community library, which is also available on Hulu.
0: Yeah, Dan, I'll be honest. I tried really, really hard to like community. It seems like a show that would be perfect for me, right? Like just a bunch of misfits, all, you know, like, super nerdy, super geeky, loaded with references and stuff like that. I fucking hated it. Like, I had to leave the room when when Natalie watched it, because this is, like, early in our relationship. And she was, like, I'm a Parks and Rec diehard, we watched that together. And then once it was, like, community, I was out. Like, couldn't do community, couldn't do The Office. And, and I, you know, 30 Rock also wasn't for me. So you can send your hate mail to <laughs> TV's Top 5. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. In conclusion, our, Leslie just hates <laughs> comedy. I mean, what are we... That is far, the farthest thing from the truth. But ha- Leslie hates good comedy. Is, stop that changing case. the subject <laughs> on me, Dan. Sorry. What my question is for you is, is this something the internet still wants? Is this something the diehard community fan wants? Does, did, I thought there was closure with that, what actually wound up being the series finale. No,
2: not not really. No, definitely there was not. Because everyone, because always the entire thing, when it went over to Yahoo and people had to figure out what the hell it was doing yeah, on Yahoo, Yahoo or what Yahoo was or anything. Uh, I still have a Yahoo email address, so whatever. So why?
0: Uh, I'm not mocking <laughs> Yahoo. I'm just mocking it as an inter- a destination for scripted
2: originals. It, it never worked. That is, that is fine. Uh, Remember when yes. Enlisted
0: was supposed to go there? That was a bummer that that didn't work out, because I love that show. Speaking you have a lover of comedy
2: fair enough i think that people probably uh some people do definitely want it back and i think people definitely clamored for it at the time somewhat amusingly i saw a lot of people say it's too late on twitter uh but my read was that it had probably been exactly the right amount of time and if they want to give me a 90 minute community movie the things that annoyed me about community and i liked community a lot and and at its peak, I thought it was a, a really, really good show, but it definitely at all times had it, it always had tone things that weren't going to be for everybody, whether it was simply Joel McHale's character, the treatment of several of the female characters. There were a lot of reasons to be uncomfortable with a lot of things in in community. It was a show that did a lot of genuinely brilliant, really smart, innovative things and that also had a lot of problems. And it all, frankly, goes back to Dan Harmon, who's writing steers exactly into that, where where you could either fully embrace all of his eccentricities, which come through in everything he writes, or you can feel like it's too much. And if you felt like it was too much, I don't think that's I don't think that's wrong. But anyway, it all it, it all just comes back again to the things that Paramount is throwing that Paramount that Peacock is throwing against the wall to see if this is going to be the thing that sticks or if that's going to be the thing that sticks. And I, I think there's an audience. This, be
0: yeah. Even if there's an audience for this, this is not going to be the thing that sticks because it's a one-off. There's no new episode to come back the following week, unless they're planning community 2.0. The gang goes to grad school. Well,
2: I, I mean, honestly, Sorry,
0: Peacock, I want to I want an executive producer credit on that one <laughs> and full back end points, please. Thank you.
2: Yeah. And in, in this day and age, I don't think anyone would be surprised if something resembling that happened. Uh, some of the people involved are very <laughs> unlikely to want to be involved in that. But I bet you you could uh, come up with some situation in which Joel McHale made by the bell, the new class.
0: <laughs> oh,
2: that Sorry, did Peacock I just talk show. them
0: into and out of a community reboot?
2: I think you probably (laughs) did. On the other hand, you probably also made some people excited because there are still some people who who mourn the loss of Saved by the Bell, the new class. I doubt that those people work for Peacock, though.
0: I'm not and I'm not making fun of Saved by the Bell, the new class, and I'm not making fun of Saved by the Bell, and I'm not making fun of community, even though I like I said, it's not a show that's for me, which is I'm entitled to that opinion. I am, however, making fun of Peacock. So. Let's be clear. You know, wrapping up headlines. And like I mentioned, this is a topic that we somehow overlooked. But Fox has a new CEO with unscripted chief Rob Wade taking over for Charlie Collier at the helm of the broadcast network. Collier departed in late September for a top job at Roku. So in short, what is this signal, Dan?
2: I haven't the faintest idea because I have no idea what Fox actually is at this exact moment. So I think more unscripted
0: just, is what it yeah. signals to me because, <laughs> Which, you know, look, they have Michael Thorne, who's been there for a long time, who heads scripted originals, uh, the president of entertainment over there. I think that's the title. I can't remember. All these titles are different now in in, in our year of 2022. But, yeah, they could have picked the scripted guy. All, all my money was was sitting on on Thorne getting the job. And instead they went with Rob Wade because, well. Name a, name a scripted show on Fox that has been a super big hit that Fox owns and controls.
2: Oh, but you, you can't do that, which is, why my question, which is why my question of what Fox is going forward. At this point, Fox is a bunch of icky reality shows, great animation stuff that continues to air on Sunday that they don't own, and, right? and like Monarch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, which, I mean, we, we heard your review of Monarch. So.
2: Yeah. But Mon- Monarch Plus the
0: 911 was... franchise, which, of course, they also don't own.
2: Which at least does well for, you know, keeps the light on lights on and in addition right, to but at, at a certain point
0: that show the licensing fees are going to be too expensive for them to keep doing it. And it'll either end or given Ryan Murphy's affiliate uh, affiliation with it. And the fact that I'm guessing he's probably going to go back to Disney. I'm sure it'll live on on Hulu as a first run or maybe move to ABC. They could use some, you know, male leaning procedural like that. Right. Two of them. Sure. Take both. Take two. They're free. You own them.
2: Well, you can also go back to our conversation with uh, Tim Maneer from whenever the heck that was, and we surely discussed the possibility that there could be seven or eight more different 911s, so.
0: Yeah, that would be episode 53, back in the very before times, January 10th, 2020, when he was our showrunner spotlight, pegged to the launch of 911 Lone Star.
2: Indeed, and that was another one of those interviews that we actually did at Press Tour, in person, and...
0: And also, Tim Minear is great. Like, yes. you know, say what you will about doing procedurals for Fox, but Tim Minear is a fabulous interview and has an amazing background. And if you don't follow him on social, look him up. I think his, his handle is canceled again, which is so appropriate. And we talked to him about during the interview, as I recall, too.
2: Yes, he was. He was wonderfully candid about yeah. various short-lived shows and all of that. He was he was terrific. So, yeah,
0: one, one of the best interviews that we've done among among them. So
2: number two. <laughs> Up next, you might have heard Leslie mention the executive carousel, and our third topic could have been the second topic if we'd recorded a day or two earlier ago. But on Thursday, the big news is David Nevins is leaving Paramount Global. Leslie, you can either continue to hum your carousel theme, or you can tell us what it all means, because you've been working on this for the past... Four hours consecutively, which is also part of why you're vaguely hepped up on sugar and possibly a little bit insane.
0: Yeah, I think you're probably the latter part is probably a little bit more accurate than the first Um So, yeah, David Nevins is leaving Paramount Global. He was once the the president of Showtime. If you uh, recall, he previously replaced Bob Greenblatt as president of the Premium Cable Network. But since 2020, his star has really risen within the company, within the larger company, I should say, Paramount Global. He's been promoted over the years. His most recent title was CEO of Paramount Premium Group. He was the chief creative officer for Paramount Plus Scripted Originals, and yeah, he's leaving at the end of the year. He made the decision on his own. And it was one that he told me that he was considering for a long time. I've heard his, you know, his name come up for other executive jobs in the past. It's been kind of a industry topic of conversation about the the structure within Paramount Global. So, yes, while his star has continued to rise, he didn't get the top job that ultimately went to George Cheeks, who replaced Joe Ionello, who, of course, was the interim gig following the ouster of Les Moonves. So what does this mean exactly? And why does it concern our devoted listeners of TV's Top 5? Well, Nevins was the executive, the highest-ranking executive that had a creative background. He knew showrunners. He knows producers. He's a former network executive. He's a former development executive. He's a former producer during his time at Imagine Television, where he played a role in developing Friday Night Lights, one of my favorite shows of all time. And he basically, from what I understand, uh, per sources, per what the writing is on the wall, is there were a lot of cooks in that kitchen. And What happened is rather than having your traditional think linear, right? Where it's like you have your network president, you have your VP, and then you have your current executive and your comedy executive and then your drama executive. And then you have their respective teams and then you have the unscripted side. So rather than doing it at, you know, in a, in a linear think structure like that, what Paramount global CEO Bob Backish did is he basically gave control to pretty much everyone. Think of like a, you know, like a, like a, a little carousel speaking of, do, 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 I digress. <laughs> um, So he's he, on one hand, you've got Chris McCarthy. He's overseeing all of the, the linear networks. He's also absorbing oversight of Showtime in the wake of Nevin's departure. McCarthy oversees Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, like BH1, CMT, whatever the heck Smithsonian is and what content they have. And, Basically, he gets a hand in, in a vote in some of the unscripted stuff. And then you've got Brian Robbins, who oversees Nickelodeon, as well as the Paramount Film Studio. So he oversees the Nickelodeon content. Then you've got everyone else. Tom Ryan oversees all the streaming strategy. So so you're looking at people who are have different roles and different oversight. And then you've got George Cheeks, who's doing news and sports. Well, when Nevins was previously at Showtime, he oversaw all of those things. He reported into Moonvest directly. And that's like a one-stop, like a, a layer of one to get to the top, right? And now what's happening is if there was a show that Nevins hypothetically wanted to greenlight and he says, This is what we're gonna do. I want da, 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 this many, this much money, XYZ, it goes to that whole group. That whole group has to sit there and say, Yeah, I think that, and you know, but we could use these resources over here for this other thing that that we're doing, blah, 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 blah. So that's not how Nevins is known to operate. So it's basically what we're looking at is the guy who had the most relationships, the deepest roster of experience in doing entertainment programming is no longer with Paramount. So he's leaving at the end of the year. He says he's going to help with the transition and what comes next. But in the meantime, a lot of his responsibilities have been divvied up between George Cheeks, who's going to take oversight of BET, and Chris McCarthy, who's taking control of Showtime. So a lot of people are concerned about what this means. It's still very early. This just happened about a couple hours ago as we sit and record this. So my big question, and these are all topics that I'm sure we'll be reporting on in the coming months, but what does this mean for Showtime? Is there going to be another executive restructuring to help maybe better integrate studios, to help figure out a strategy for linear? Because, like I said, like, that Comedy Central lineup is repeats of shows that aren't even theirs and syndication You know, MTV is like 20 hours of ridiculousness. Like, literally, that's the name of the show, Ridiculousness. I'm not mocking MTV, although I kind of am too. But anyway, so Showtime has a great roster. Those are all expensive shows to to make and produce. And then there's the question of if the Showtime over-the-top streaming service is going to be fully integrated into Paramount Plus and they're going to put those subscribers into the larger pot, kind of like how HBO had to fold HBO Go when it launched or into HBO Max, if you want to think about it that way. So I hope this is making sense. I can't really tell. I'm running on fumes here, Dan. What questions do you have that I haven't answered yet?
2: I'm just curious where David Nevinson's could go next and sort of how, how the carousel works because... You know, he was obviously he was a person on the rise and he was a person on the rise, the rise with a terrific pedigree. You mentioned the Imagine well television program. well respected yeah. So you got your Friday Night Lights, you got your uh, 24s, et cetera, et cetera. Your Ray
0: Donovan's, he he led Shameless. Homeland was his. He. Um, I think he's part of the team that brought Dexter back, although I think that credit might go to Gary Levine, though it definitely started with David because I remember covering Dexter when it ended and every single TCA – I was that schmuck who asked if what the status of Dexter was. And as he pointed out, when I picked picked up the phone and started the call, he goes, you know, I never lied to you. And you know what? He's right. He never lied. He never said it's not happening. He ever said that he left the door open for years.
2: That is that is true, and he had to deal with an awful lot of lumberjack jokes. I'm pretty sure that I, <laughs> I I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I, be, I believe that when they had the executive session after they announced that uh, Homeland was coming to an end, that I, that I phrased my question was, when did you know that it was finally time for Kerry Matheson to become a uh, lumberjack? And, and I remember the I long remember pause, the, the long pause, and then laughter. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I'm just I'm always curious where the people who seem like generally artistically invested executive types where they end up in a business in which that may not at any given moment be the thing that is driving anything in the industry. And so as long as we've, you know, as long as we're talking incessantly and constantly about what's happening at uh, HBO Discovery with David Zaslav, who's not one of those people, uh, just following where those people, the people who do come up from the creative ranks, and, you know, that includes Greenblatt, it includes a lot of people like that. Greenblatt's
0: got back, went back to producing. Pedowitz, who we'll talk about next, is going back to producing.
2: And Nevin says he doesn't know. And, And I assume that he has many, many options, and he's definitely young enough that he's got another act or possibly two in his career, Uh, maybe not three. Who knows? I wouldn't
0: doubt that he's got at least two, maybe three. But it depends, you know, like one of the things that he mentioned when we were talking is he never expected to really stay in one place for this long. 12 years is a great run in this town, especially when, you know, rising through the ranks and becoming, you know, parlaying your creative taste from Showtime into a larger role overseeing a, a big chunk of the business. But yeah, he says he, he doesn't he says he doesn't know what's next. But uh, yeah, I forgot where I was going with this, Dan. What did you know? Uh, it's, but,
2: but it's obviously true. And it's true that as we go on to the next segment and and we're going to transition is that is that part of why we're doing two different segments on this week's executive carousel is that we are dealing with a couple of the longest tenured people in a business that is for the most part, not a business for long tenured people, at least in the same job. Sometimes, obviously, they'll bump from, you know, one big job at one company to another, or they'll bump from one company to the bigger umbrella job at whatever the corporate entity was that bought it. it. That happens, of course, all the time, but still David Evans has been in his gig for a long time. And the, the subject of our, our next segment has also been in the business for a long time. So up next. Number 3 This could have been our top story if it hadn't been for what happened earlier on Thursday. Uh do it is <laughs> <laughs> i'm a little disappointed that we didn't record (laughs) your half of the podcast today with you the way you are and my half somehow in through some time warp yesterday after i was finished with my yom kippur fasting and we could have seen who was loopier and more generally insane i have to say probably that you seem to be loopy and vaguely nutty i was probably just a wreck at around 7 30 yesterday so anyway though it is official, the CW is now majority owned by Nexstar, yay, which took control of the broadcast R. which took control of the broadcast network on October 1st, and the station group is immediately making big changes and that begins with CEO and former TV's top 5 guest, Leslie, when was that?
0: Pedowitz previously joined us November 13th, 2020. That would be in episode 95 when he discussed the end of Supernatural and what it meant for the future of the CW.
2: Indeed, and little did he know. So anyway, Mark Pedowitz has stepped down from his role after an 11-year run that saw him become the longest tenured network topper on broadcast. They have brought in former Saturday Night Live star and Weekend Update host Dennis Miller to run things. (laughs) No, they haven't. Okay, fine. Well they brought in They brought in somebody named Dennis Miller to they, they run have, things. Yeah. Uh, a different and it, old white dude. If you've seen the if you've seen the pictures uh, from from the website, he looks um, very intense. Uh, or as intense. you
0: described on Twitter, like a guy that will cancel all of your favorite shows, especially the ones with gay characters in it.
2: I believe that is indeed how I described his headshot. That, of course, has no reflection on him as a person. I know literally nothing about him as a person. Other than, that, other than that he did not, in fact, ever host Weekend Update on SNL. But Here's it's one also thing possible. that I do know about Whoop, him, Dan. What do you know? He
0: is a member of the family... The Miller family who created the clothing company Miller's Outpost. I
2: don't even know what that is.
0: You don't know what Miller's Outpost. Okay, it's got to be a Southern California thing. So think of (laughs) this was like if you grew up in in, in SoCal, you grew up in L.A., everyone in my high school shop there is Miller's Outpost. So think of it as like the gap before there was the gap. Or at the same time that as there was the gap. But if you grew up in LA, there was this one location. It was, God, it was like La Cienega and Olympic at this big corner. Actually, it was I'm wrong. It was like Robert Robertson and Pico is where it was, because it was right next to the newsstand where I first bought my very, very first copy of Entertainment Weekly. And this was the place where Everyone shopped. Like Monday if they're having a sale Monday morning, everyone comes to school and you're literally wearing, Oh, I, I bought that shirt in green. You're wearing the, the gray one. Okay, cool. Yeah, I bought those jeans too. Different shade. The literally everyone shopped there. So this was like a huge
2: clothing chain. I was I was more of a hyper colour guy, Leslie. What the hell's hyper color? What do you is talking that, that Wait, are, about- are
0: those the shirts that change color, as you said? Yes. Sweat? And if you,
2: or if someone put, if, or if someone put their hand inappropriately on your chest, you would get a handprint. Or if you got really sweaty during a day of class, you just came across as really gross. So, yeah,
0: it was like warning, I'm sweaty, stay the fuck away from me. Exactly. Or if you've been inappropriately touched, hey, there's evidence. So maybe that's what we need to, to, you know, jumpstart the MeToo movement again. <laughs>
2: Bring back hyper color T-shirts. Bring back,
0: every executive, every showrunner, every writer wears a hyper shirt to the writer's room.
2: Okay. So that was I a good segment. Let's get on to this week's interview. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. No? So, no, but, but in all seriousness, yeah, this is, I mean, we're, let's pour one out for, for Mark Petowitz. He was a fantastic guest on TV Stuff 5. He was a fantastic executive, just incredibly friendly, always asked how you're doing, but wanted to actually get to know the people that he was working with, including press, which is not something you get every day. And what's happened to him is really, to put it bluntly, it's shitty. So he had time left on his contract. He was, sources say he was in renegotiations to to return and to, to remain on board as CEO of the CW. But talks I hear broke down in the weekend that preceded the Monday morning announcement, And boom, he's gone. So sources say that the issue possibly was the reporting structure. I would imagine that after reporting to the board, which consisted of executives from corporate parents, Paramount and Warner Brothers, that he was going to be asked to report to the board of Nexstar or maybe even into this Dennis Miller dude who – aside from being related to the Miller's Outpost family. And, not being, out. and not, not, not being not the, the guy from yeah. Saturday Night Live. He's not the guy from Saturday Night He's not the guy from Saturday Oh, he was also the former head of television at Lionsgate Television. But this is like right when, when the studio launched the TV arm. And this was in the, like the late 90s. So doesn't exactly have his finger on the pulse of the town. A lot of people that I talked to this week, including some sources within the CW had never even heard of this guy before. Sor- sources at other studios where the CW does business, as in CBS TV studios, Warner Brothers television, among others, never heard of this guy. So yikes. So I don't know. Anyway, either way, Petowitz is out. And as I exclusively reported hours after afterward, after Pedowitz departed and after he stepped down, Nexstar has also pushed out his top two lieutenants with the head of marketing and streaming, Rick Haskins, who is always great on press calls around upfronts, as well as finance chief Mitch Nettick. It's unclear if there will be any other layoffs, as Nexstar, sources say, will focus on making the CW profitable by 2025, which it has said before. And sources say keeping affiliates happy and... Making cheaper shows. So why am I emphasizing making cheaper shows? The CW has probably, if not the lowest, then near the lowest budget for scripted originals. That's the idea. You make shows inexpensively. You sell them to Netflix as part of a $1 billion, $1 billion streaming output deal And then you sell them worldwide, and then you get rich. And that's exactly what happened for a long time for CBS Studios and Warner Brothers Television. And that's exactly why they sold the CW, because both of those business models no longer work with the arrival of HBO Max and Paramount Plus, respectively. You need those contents. You need that the the streaming domestic rights. You need the foreign rights for your platforms, for your internal platforms, because everything that the company is doing is focused on streaming and building up your platforms. And yes, they're still going to sell to outside studios here and there, but you, you're you basically getting paid. You're making a show like All American, which costs, I'm guessing, in the $5 million an episode, if not lower, uh, to produce. You're making a show on the cheap, then you sell it to Netflix, you have the billion dollar money, then you sell it internationally, but now you don't have any of that money and it's dried up. And so now you're, you're left on the hook for... $4 million an episode, $5 million an episode, times however many episodes you do, that adds up. So NextStar said in a filing with the Security and Exchange Commission on Tuesday that they will continue to produce 12 original scripted series for the 2022-23 broadcast season from Warner Brothers, Discovery, and Paramount, who each continue to retain, of course, a 12.5% stake in the network. So what does this mean? It means that the schedule as you know it for the CW this year, it's fine. Shows like Walker, it's spinoff, the Winchesters, which is the supernatural prequel that Pedowitz has tried for years. Gotham Knights. You mentioned it, not me. Every one that, every show that's already been announced, final seasons of the flash and Riverdale, et cetera, they're not going anywhere. But beyond that, I don't know. It's a big, big question. So what I do know for, uh, to be sure now is that the next star is already trying to renegotiate the CWs already cheap licensing fees. So, Yeah, that's not a great sign. So, look, they're still committed to investing the low nine figures. That's no small tally. But at the same time, that's far more uh, making 12 scripted shows from studios, including Warners and Paramount. That's a lot more than the low nine figures.
2: It'll be interesting to see what that programming looks like, what programming you can do at more of a budget reduction than the cw already does and it goes back again to what i said about david nevins is that my sympathies and interests will always be with the executives who come from creative backgrounds and who have an interest that is a clear interest in creative rather than rather than money and and that was always the most appealing thing about mark petowitz is that he he came in and he said i don't watch All of these shows yet, but I'm going to.
0: And he did every episode, every single episode. And he read every single script.
2: And so every person we talked to over the years and not just on this podcast, but just in general, who worked on things at the CW, always they were amazed by the fact that he could talk to them about every single script, that he could talk to them about the episode that he watched at six in the morning on the treadmill or wherever he was watching it, that he took deep personal investment in Supernatural as a narrative in the Vampire Diaries series. And so that always. And as e- Julie
0: Plex said, they yeah. were working on another spinoff of the Vampire Diaries when they made. When Warner sources a pull the plug on Legacies. And yeah, they, so, Julie was expecting that show to come back. You can go back and 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 listen to that interview.
2: That was only 2 weeks ago. You don't really need to go. You don't need to go deep into your records to tell the people where to find our Julie Pleck interview. It was it was fairly recent. The yeah, listeners
0: episode know. 185 from September 16.
2: Yeah, that was 3 episodes ago. Anyway, yeah, so so that's that's sort of where I come away feeling a little bit sad on this. And you know, I'd watched less and less CW over the years and that was probably in part you know, demographics, <laughs> not really I, so much program. Dan,
0: you're, you're a completionist. I think this you watch less and less of the CW because not because you aged out of it, but I don't think you've aged out of it. I'm oh, about definitely. to age out of it, but because there's a lot of television.
2: There is, but I still there. There
0: was absolutely You are the I, biggest fan of Legends of Tomorrow that I ever met.
2: I, I loved Legends of Tomorrow for a couple years. I loved uh, well, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Crazy Jane ex-girlfriend. the Virgin. Exactly. And for, you know, I watched every episode of Vampire Diaries. I watched nearly every episode of the originals. I watched less of Legacies, but that was really just more a factor of time and programming. But still, there was a period where I watched, I watched every episode of I, Zombie, et cetera. I, there was but a also- time... Ton-
0: as you're yeah. naming all of these shows, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Dan, but as you're naming every single one of these shows, look at the talent on screen and the talent behind the scenes in terms of showrunners and, and probably directors who I'm not as familiar with, but who have emerged because they learned how they learned the ropes by working at the CW, right? Greg Berlanti, his first job showrunning was on Dawson's Creek, right? Former WB Network show. I mean, we're not, not talking about Pettowitz but like that's still the continuation. Julie Plex, first time as a showrunner, was on The Vampire Diaries, Right? Look at how look at like the entire cast of Riverdale. They're they're all superstars now. Right? I mean, who all, else are I mean, they a bunch all
2: more. superstars now? Are they superstars now? <laughs> but like look at look at all
0: of the showrunners, you know, that have come from that. Look at all the writers who emerged and became showrunners who got their starts in the CW. And I'm not just talking about people that I know and love. I'm just talking about people getting opportunities that that maybe they wouldn't have got if there were only four broadcast networks. And this is even before the streaming revolution.
2: Right. You know, it will be it will be interesting to see if they still are able to function as an incubator in the same way. And along the same lines, if Fox is going in a direction that is more reality centric and and a couple brands and whatever, that's another what place is going.
0: They already have. Look at how few originals they, ha- they still have on their,
2: on their but there lineup. you have, there you have the two kind of junior broadcast networks, the networks that came in the, in the eighties and into the nineties and into the aughts. And if they're both de-emphasizing the kind of program, the programming that allowed them to appeal to young audiences, and we're just going to be back to three broadcast networks. And even they're doing whatever they're doing. It's, you know, it's, it is a, It is a change in the industry and one that almost certainly cannot be for the better creatively, but, you know, maybe it won't.
0: Fox has like eight scripted live action shows and the bulk of them are they don't own. And then they've got the animation roster, which, of course, they're making. They've ordered a lot of animated comedy because you can. I mean, I wouldn't hold your breath, but it's definitely going to happen at some point because at who knows when, but it, I think it will happen. But Bob's Burgers, The Simpsons, Family Guy, all of those shows that are owned by, by Disney, are, I think at some point in time will no longer air on Fox. It's just a question of when.
2: At some point, theoretically, any of those shows could actually end, maybe. But not that I'm rooting for any of them. But those are, they're end. such,
0: they're, I mean, they're all multi-billion dollar assets right now. It would be... It would behoove them to find it to just put them on their own platform. But at the same time, you know, I'm diverging from the subject here, but if they were to do that, they have to open up all the original talent deals and guessing the people behind those shows have a lot of leverage considering that they oversee a multi-billion dollar asset. And also Seth MacFarlane isn't even based there anymore. So anyway, I digress.
2: In conclusion, Dennis Miller is not that Dennis Miller and those jokes have all been made.
1: Doot, 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 doot.
3: Our
0: next guest is Glamour senior editor Jessica Radloff, who spent a whopping 116 hours conducting nearly 40 interviews to write the upcoming The Big Bang Theory, the definitive inside-out story of the epic hit series. The book is due October 11th, timed to the 15th anniversary of the hit show. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us, and I will not hold the fact that you're a Cardinals fan against you.
1: I am so happy to be here, Dan and Leslie, and I just cannot shout it enough how much I am so appreciative of what Leslie did to get me to this point. So I'm going to be uh, Leslie's fan club president, uh, regardless if she's a Dodgers fan. Uh, she uh, she means a lot to the Radlaw family. So can't wait to explain more about that in a minute. Even if she is a Dodger fan, it's okay. <laughs> so we have an, an- exclusive
0: excerpt from your book uh, up on THR right now. Um, it honestly kind of made my jaw drop, which isn't easy considering I, too, covered this show pretty extensively from the start. So you revealed that Marissa Tomei, Tara Reid, and Elizabeth Berkley were all considered to play the character of Penny, who, of course, eventually was brought to life by Kaylee Cuoco. How many stories did you hear from the
1: cast and creators that truly surprised you? Oh, so many. I was I was shocked. And like you said, you, you and I covered the show The most, I think, out of everybody out here in LA. So there's not a lot that surprises me. And it was one of the first things that I actually said to Steve Malaro when we were talking about the idea. yeah. Yeah, Steve Malaro, the showrunner and EP, when we were first even discussing the possibility of a book, which is. This show has been written about ad nauseum, so I'm not going to do a book and ask fans to pay money for it unless we know there are new stories to be uncovered here. And he assured me that there were. Um, what was interesting, though, is that sometimes the producers and the cast didn't even know some of these stories, and they were equally shocked. So there was a lot, especially with just the casting stories, things that happened along the way over 12 years. I mean, when you're on air for 12 seasons, you're going to have a lot of stuff that goes down and doesn't, you know, get uncovered until later. And it really did surprise me.
2: Yeah. Well, having done as much coverage as you did over the years, getting to talk to these people three years after the show had gone off, when they'd had a little bit of time to get out of the hurricane of the show and all of that, what struck you most about how people were different, about the tone that they said, about the willingness to talk about things, et cetera.
1: You know what's so funny, Dan, is that I I knew they would all do interviews for the book. I could never, in a million years, have expected they would do as many interviews as they did. If you would have told me Jim Parsons would have done twenty plus hours of interviews, sweet, I would Jesus. have said I would have said you were crazy. I was scared. And he's not
0: exactly, you know. He, I, I would describe him as press shy, honestly, because over yes. the over the seasons, I think I'm maybe interviewed him the most on red carpets at like events like the Paley Center. And of course, whenever I went to set, but he, it was, he never did phoners. He, you know, he
1: rarely did features. Yeah, he is one of the most Thoughtful people, the way that he talks about the show, that he talks about Sheldon, that he talks about himself. It was like therapy, um, which he says on the on the back of the book cover, this was like therapy for him. And um and I he was, was just, the one that decided to walk away, which of course
0: brought the show to its end because Chuck right. has, had said he's not doing the show without one of the central
1: Uh, Right. Which is why I was shocked to get 20 plus hours with him. I was, I was thinking maybe I'll get an hour. And I was scared because I thought I have so many questions. I'm never going to get through all of this. How am I going to do it? And he said to me something that really struck me in our first session, which was, he was just reading Mike Nichols's biography. And um, he said, you know, you love to hear about how something was made and what made it special. And he said, if it's, if it's special and if it touches people, then it's worth doing a deep dive into. And I will never forget when we were doing our last session, as we called them, he was really disappointed that it was the last one. He's like, He goes, I'm sad. He's like, I I want to talk more. And I said, Jim, I will I will do fake interviews with you for as many times as you want. I will talk to you. You are a friend for life now. I love our chats. But I was like, I gotta put together a book. I have no more room. I mean, this could have easily been the Jim Parsons book because he was so amazing with talking about everything. And to me, that just is such an amazing example of the kind of person he is because i as as lovely as the cast of friends is i cannot imagine the cast of friends ever saying i am going to sit down with you and do all these hours of interviews and not get paid for it you know and the cast of big bang did and to me that just speaks of how much they respect the show love the show loved that experience so yeah, that that really shocked me. But I just had the best time with him, and he was so forthcoming um, to me. It just he made it easy for me, truly. Yeah.
0: And, and you know, it, it's interesting that you bring up the cast of Friends because, you know, obviously Big Bang followed the Friends playbook when it came to negotiating salaries. Right. Like the cast for, of Friends famously stuck together and, and united and negotiated a one million in an episode payday, which was huge at the time. And the cast of Big Bang did the same. And as I reported later in the show's life, they wound up taking a pay cut a little bit to help Mayim Biala get up to salary parity with everyone else, which is huge. So, you know, was there anything that was off limits? Because I know a lot of times actors, talent producers, you know, showrunners especially are loath to talk about uh, salary rene- renegotiations. Do they go there in this book?
1: They absolutely went there. And it um, it was because of Johnny Galecki, actually. He called um, the day after we did our first interview for the book, and he said, I'm ready to talk about the pay cuts, which I didn't know if they were going to go there because it was highly reported. Like you said, you you did a story on it as so many other outlets did, but the cast never confirmed it. Um, the only quote we had was Mayim Bialik telling People Magazine, I believe, saying, don't believe everything you read. That's that's all that was on the record about it. And Johnny said to me, if we're gonna do this book and do it right, like." then I'm, I'm ready to talk about it. And I told the cast up front and the producers going into this whole process that if anybody told me a story that involved anybody else, that I was going to then tell everybody else involved in this process what was said. Because to me, even though there's so many surprises in the book, there couldn't be surprises among the cast. They had to know when they picked up this book, they needed to know what was in there and what they talked about. And also because I wanted to get their reactions to what people had said. So... Johnny opened up in great detail about the pay cuts. And basically what happened was is without giving too much away, less moon vests called the five original cast members into the green room one day. Melissa and Mayim, Mayim Bialik and Melissa Rausch, were not included in that meeting. And Les gathered the five main cast members plus Chuck. Agents, managers, lawyers were not aware of this meeting ahead of time. And Les basically made a presentation saying, if you want to keep your show on the air, and you want to keep Melissa and Mayim as part of the show, then you are going to have to take these pay cuts." Um, And that was really hard, because he did it supposedly as a way to bypass representation, so, you know, they would be willing to do whatever they could, and. Chuck even says in the book that he thought they would all be like, yes, let's all gather together. And instead, it completely backfired because the cast was like, what is happening here? And even Jim Parsons said to me, he's like, when I first told him that Johnny wanted to talk about it, he said, I never, ever thought that we would be talking about this publicly on the record, but... Everything that Johnny and Chuck and Kaylee are saying is absolutely true, and I'm happy to go there. And they did, and they talked about what happened in that green room meeting, and they talked about what happened afterwards and how difficult it was because... You know, they basically felt they're not the finance guys. They don't know how this works, but they felt like Melissa and Mayim were being dangled as collateral, saying, "If you if you love your cast members as much as you say and you want the show to continue with them, you're going to have to cough, cough up your salary." And they all agreed. Listen, a million dollars or nine hundred thousand dollars an episode, they're still making a ton of money. They were still so grateful to that, but. It I mean, did, they're all millionaires like, right, but multiple it, it, times over. Yes. And they're so grateful for that. And they made they made sure to keep saying that. But it was really strange how it went about with them. And they didn't know who to believe, you know, because, again, the show was making so much money. At the same time, it was in season 10. So by season 10, it wasn't as lucrative as it was prior because it had already reached syndication. You know, so there was so many factors involved. And... um I give them credit that they all went there to talk about it with me. And so did Chuck Lorre. Um, And they never said, you know what, we're going to take this back. We don't want to. They were very open and honest. And I I really appreciate them going there because they hadn't acknowledged it before. And they do for the first
2: time. You were saying before we started that you had 10 hours with Chuck Lorre, which is an impressive amount. And we've we've had Chuck on the podcast. And when Chuck wants to talk about something, Chuck is spectacular. But when Chuck does not want to talk about something, he's just not going to talk about it. What did you discover he was eager to talk about? And what did you have to tease out a little bit?
1: You know what, Dan? He was eager to talk about everything. And it made me admire and respect him even more. And that includes some of the things that were not easy throughout the show's run, from the end of the show to, like I said, those pay cuts, um, to also things he would have done differently Throughout the show's run, he talks a lot about how the character of Penny was so underdeveloped, especially in those early seasons. And that's one of his biggest regrets is that she wasn't um, as three-dimensional of a character as she later became. And, you know, I'll never forget Chuck saying to me once that he loves writing for female characters more than anything because they're just more interesting. And he loved talking about the addition of Melissa and Mayam and that dynamic and Amy's, you know, deep search for a best friend and that love story that kind of existed with Penny. Um, so he was he was so great. I don't know if I just wore him down or or whatever, but he was he was so kind and forthcoming. And I think something that Chuck liked, and I, I say this for everybody that I interviewed, is they loved the process where I would read them a quote from somebody else about them and then they could react to it. That was really fun. And I'll never forget because there's a story in the book how Kaylee and Johnny thought for years that chuck was adding in more sex scenes for penny and leonard after they had broken up and Pe- and kaylee even talked about this on Dak shepherd's podcast that she was certain that chuck was i don't know if i can swear on this podcast but F- go can. crazy him. Go okay crazy, yeah. but effing with uh, fucking with him for for adding in these sex scenes and i was like you know what i'm gonna ask chuck about this and i said to chuck i was like were you fucking with them by adding and he said Absolutely not. He's like, I think it's hilarious that they think I was. He's like, but when you are making a 22-minute show, you have no room for fucking with anybody. He's like, we're just trying to make the best show that we could. But it was also like at the time when Kaylee and Johnny were dating. Right. Um, And when they had broken up too. And it was so funny because he loved to hear what Johnny and Kaylee thought. And then I'll never forget when he told me that, no, that wasn't the case. I went back to Kaylee and Johnny and I said, so I asked Chuck... And this is what he said. And I'll never forget, Kaylee says to me, you asked Chuck about that? And I said, of course I did. I'm a journalist. Like, you tell me that you think he did something. I'm going to get the answer for you. And and I did. And then they, they were like, well, I guess that's right. He wasn't fucking with us. And that's pretty egotistical on our behalf to think that he was messing with us. Um, So I think they I know Chuck loved that part. And so did Bill Prady and all the producers and hearing what the cast would say. And then, you know, they could then add their own, you know, story to it. So this, I think, was a really fun process for them that they hadn't been afforded in the past, because normally, it's just an interview, you know, where you're asking questions. And in this case, I had the opportunity to tell them stories, have them react to it. And they, they really got a kick out of that.
0: You know, you, you've you also tracked down a lot of people who were, you know, not quite in the same orbit as the central cast members and Chuck, yeah. you know, including the original Katie or Penny. early Penny. Yeah. So um, who, who was the hardest to, to person to track down and, and the hardest to convince to participate here?
1: Um, the hardest person to track down was Christine Baranski. And that was because she was in the middle of filming The Gilded Age. And, of course, um, the good fight, and she was just so busy. And Christine is one of those people, which we can all understand, when you're in the middle of a project, you are so focused um, that it's hard to make yourself available for something else. I had heard from her team early on that she wanted to do interviews for the book. It was just really hard to get her schedule nailed down. So we were getting to the very, like I was getting to a deadline where I needed to put this book together, and I really wanted Christine to be part of this. So I had actually done a meet and greet with her daughter um, years ago, who's an actress on Roswell, Lily Coles. And I reached out to Lily and I said, listen, I, I'm not asking you to do anything. I said, but I just was curious. I was told your mom is on vacation. Do you happen to know her schedule? Because I really love to get her. And Lily was so wonderful. She was like, oh my God. She's like, thank you. I'm so glad that you wrote me. She said, because if my mother was not a part of this book and missed her deadline, she would be devastated. She's like, she is on vacation with her girlfriends right now in Tuscany. I'm going to text her and we'll get you an interview. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening? And sure enough, uh, Lily put me and Christine on a text chain together and she said, mama, meet Jessica. <laughs> Jessica wanted to get you for an interview but her deadline is coming up. And Christine was so lovely. And she's like, oh my gosh, darling, I'm so sorry. You had to track me down on this vacation. So she called me. It was like 11 o'clock her time. She was drinking wine in her Tuscan villa. And she was like, I I just can't wait to just just let me talk about the show and Chuck and everything. And she was amazing. But she was the hardest person um, to nail down that I would have loved. The only person that I did not get for the book that I would have loved to have had, um, aside, of course, from like a Stephen Hawking or a Leonard Nimoy, was, um, I did talk to Adam Nimoy, Leonard's son, who was wonderful and gave me some great stories and anecdotes about his dad. Um, I really wanted James Earl Jones because Jim Parsons talks in depth about the episode that James Earl Jones did and how he kept thinking, I can't believe this legend is doing this with me. And not just doing an episode of Big Bang, but doing things like karaoke and sitting in a steam room and, you know, going on a Ferris wheel. Um, but I was told that, uh, James was not in the best of health and could not do it. Um, which was very sad, but he's, he's doing well, but he was not able to do an actual interview. And that was the only person I would have loved to have gotten. Um, but he's definitely represented in the book, um, with some of the stories and even Chuck says he wasn't in the best of health when he did that episode, but he was such a trooper and he was amazing. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't have been more fortunate with the people that participated, including Mark Hamill, who, by the way, we were going to do a 20 minute interview. And it turned into an hour and a half because Mark Hamill is obsessed with the Big Bang Theory, which I did not know. Um, and he's obsessed with also discovering the stories behind TV pilots. So that was such a surprise to, to you know, spend time with uh, Luke Skywalker to uh, hear all about his love of the Big Bang Theory
2: well, as Leslie mentioned, you talked to the original Penny, Katie, you talked to Amanda Walsh. What was that conversation like? What, it, what is sort of your sense of the journey that she has gone through with coming to terms with having been this close to this kind of juggernaut, but being a footnote in it?
1: Yeah, I had reached out to Dave Becky, who is her manager. Dave is very well known in this industry. He's a producer on some amazing shows like Hacks and everything, and... um Dave put me in touch with Amanda and I was very nervous going into that interview. I have to say because she's never done an interview about her experience being the original female lead on this show. And I, I wanted her to know this was a safe space that we could really talk about it because I realized how difficult this must've been for her over the years. The show was everywhere. And for those that knew her knew, I'm sure, you know, she's, been told all the time, can you imagine what your life would have been like if you would have been? I mean, that is so hard to cut to hear that. But she was so wonderful on Zoom with me and so classy. And what she said was, she said, had I stayed in this role, this would not have been the same show. And I am aware of that. She said, the show that we did was not the show that made it to air. And that's something of a comfort to to know that she said, I've, I've caught the show, you know, here and there, and it's fantastic. And she said, you know, it was really great that after she was let go from Big Bang's first pilot, Jimmy Burroughs hired her on another pilot and really helped her understand this had nothing to do with her performance. She was great. She did everything that was asked of her. Um, it just wasn't a well-written character in that first Incarnation and Chuck Lorre also took the blame for it, saying, "I just we didn't write a good character. This had nothing to do, you know. Multiple actors came in to try to play this role in the beginning of Penny, and it didn't work because we didn't write a a good character. Period." And I I told Amanda those quotes, and that really I think was comforting to her because um, it it really helped her also have that perspective, but. She was so fantastic. She also she still acts, and she went on to become a writer on Schitt's Creek, which is really cool. And Chuck loved hearing that. And she also guest starred on Two and a Half Men too. So um, I I really loved our chat, and also I think it's a great story about. You know, when you're kicked down and when you feel like, am I going to ever have my chance in life? Um, She really is a prime example for just getting back up on your feet and trusting that, you know what, there's, there, um, things happen and you kind of have to roll with it and what's meant to be will be. So it was, it was a really enlightening talk and, um, and she was great.
2: And, and just to wrap things up, if this is successful. I don't want to wrap things
1: up. I want to keep talking, Dan. This is so much fun. Come on, let's, let's go all the way to the playoffs and, and we'll do this uh, every playoff game.
2: I think our, I think our listeners are probably relieved that after a little mention of baseball at the top, we haven't gone there in the rest of the interview. So,
0: <laughs> so much hate for us talking about baseball. <laughs> Brutal.
2: But obviously, um, you know, if this is a success, then presumably down the road there could be updates or whatever. In 10 years, do you think that there's anything that people maybe still weren't quite ready to talk about? Either you in your own mind that you weren't ready to ask about or that people seem still too fresh with that you think you'd love to finally get answers on in 10 years?
1: Honestly, no. Because they went there. <laughs> they they really, really did. I mean, they gave me more than I ever could have expected, whether it was Johnny and Kaylee talking about how they first fell in love and their first kiss to who came on to who, um, to Jim Parsons talking about that that meeting in Chuck's office where he had to say that he was ready to step away from, I don't want to say playing Sheldon, because he still plays Sheldon, um, just narrating on young Sheldon, but, but step away from this, experience. Um, and the contract negotiations, the pay cuts, the all of that, I mean, they went there. There was no stone left unturned here. Um, so unless there's something that they totally kept secret from me, which I don't think is the case, I, I think we, we got it. And I have to say, you know, this book was only supposed to be about 150,000 words, and it's about 180,000 words. And that's because they They went there and they knew that this is their reunion. If they're going to talk, if they're going to open up about this experience, this is going to be it while it's fresh in their minds. And um, and for that, I'm eternally grateful.
0: So did they say anything about uh, the Big Bang Theory movie, Big Bang Theory? You know, sequel spinoff following, you know, I know there was some talk, you know, that that uh, Johnny and Kaylee had had some thoughts about possibly doing a spinoff just following them uh, and their growing family. But um, what did they say about revisiting the original core cast and coming back all together? Well, here's a
1: here's a spoiler that is in the book. I will I will tell you this is that at one point around season 10, Johnny and Kaylee considered having the show come to an end. Um, before season 12. They talked about that between the two of them and decided no after a lot of you know discussion internally that they wanted to keep doing it but they were thinking maybe season 10 is kind of the last. there, were pe- there are people in the book that talk about ideas they had for spinoffs. Nothing was actually, you know, got very far or anything. Um, because again, those are so hard to do for, you know, for every Frasier, there's a Joey, a but Joey, probably, yeah. you know, more so. Um, they do talk about the facts. And I, I think they would absolutely do a friend style reunion years from now. But as Jim Parsons said to me, he would never say half of what he said in this book in a public setting with the cast because you don't have the time to go deep. And one thing I also learned about these actors as people is that they never wanted to monopolize the conversation when they were all together in a group. They, they wanted to let people have the opportunity to speak. So by doing these interviews separately, aside from Johnny and Kaylee, who did quite a few of them together... This was their chance to go deep, and Jim said, "I would never be able to do this in a friend style reunion." So this is the reunion. Um, I, I still think they might do something like Friends down the line. Kaylee asked me if I would host it, and I said, "Are you are you kidding? Please, of course I'll do it. Do it in the middle of the night for anything you want." Um, but There's nobody better, Jess. Uh, you're very sweet, but. Um, but yeah, so that so this is their reunion and even if they do come together uh years down the line this is this is where they go there and I just want to say before we sign off and I'm or I'm kicked off either one um this this book came to me um because of Leslie Goldberg this this whole experience um she did not need me, to say any of she, this <laughs> stop she introduced me to my literary agent um and was the person that called me up and said hey I think you would be amazing to do this and that is a gift that I will never forget um I've never had any support like that in my life and I am so thankful to you for presenting this opportunity and having my back and going to bat for me, to use a baseball term. Um, I love you and I'm so appreciative of you and what you did. You are a prime example for uh, what it is to really support someone else. So thank you.
0: Thank you for saying that, Jessica, and the feelings are entirely mutual. Uh, uh, you know, from what I've read of the book, it's it's excellent so far, and you did a better job than I could have even imagined doing myself. So congratulations on this accomplishment. For our listeners, The Big Bang Theory, the definitive inside story of the Epic Hit series is available October 11th, and you can pre-order it now on Amazon and other booksellers. Find the exclusive excerpt on THR.com, and it's got links to where you can buy it. So, Jessica, thank you again so much for joining us and congratulations
1: thank you i adore you both and shanatova number five
0: as usual we wrap things up with the critics corner among this week's major new launches you've got a friend of the family on peacock pennyworth returns on hbo max not epics or mgm plus as it's known now or wait what, what, show? Now.
2: what show pennyworth what show
0: oh it's got a it's got a lame subtitle okay go ahead you mean
2: Pennyworth, the origin of Batman's Butler?
0: Yeah, thanks for clarifying. <laughs> Pennyworth returns on HBO Max, not um, not Epics. On broadcast, Grey's Anatomy and its spinoff are back, and Walker and its prequel spinoff debut. Plus, ABC brings Hillary Swank back to broadcast on Alaska. The weekend brings us another Jeffrey Dahmer show on Netflix, which also has the Midnight Club and the final season of Dairy Girls. And then Showtime's got Let the Right One In, which. We're pouring one out. Thank you so much for your understanding, Showrunners and PR for Showtimes Let the Right One In, who we did not have room for. So with apologies to what? What was that? What's the Kimmel joke with the apologies to Matt Damon?
2: <laughs> yes, we were supposed to have Matt Damon on the podcast and we didn't, yeah, but also not Matt Damon. So yeah, that's that's a, a lot of television. Um and some of it doesn't really need to be discussed. Uh Alaska Daily. Doesn't really need to be discussed, which is too bad because it comes from Tom McCarthy, who is the Oscar winning writer and producer of of Spotlight and also other tremendous movies, uh, Visitor, Station Agent. Those are both really two spectacular movies. I think both of those two movies are better than Spotlight. Neither here nor there. But uh, yes, so basically, as I said in my review, Alaska Daily is kind of halfway between being a quirky broadcast style fish out of water dramedy about a reporter who moves to Alaska and has her life turned around by the quirky small town small state well not it's a big state but small city residents etc cetera, etc cetera. and then you also have a story about missing indigenous women that's based on a ProPublica reported story that would absolutely be much more likely to be a premium cable or streaming show see unbelievable on Netflix which was also based on a ProPublica Uh, report. And the combination of the two really just doesn't go together, because you would not think that you would want to have a show that was a combination of Unbelievable and Northern Exposure, and that is kind of what this ends up being. Uh, Hillary Spike is not bad, per se, but she has a character who's very unlikable. She spends a lot of the first episode uh, ranting about the woke wussies at her old journalism job who contributed to getting her cancelled. And I think To some degree, they really do want her to be thoroughly unlikable because the point is that she's going to go to Alaska and it's going to change her. But that's sort of a, a pat, programmatic way of building a character And it has nothing to do with actual hard reporting and nothing to do with taking seriously the plight of missing indigenous women in Alaska. And the ridiculous thing is that this is still a much more serious minded approach to that particular topic than what Big Sky did in its first few episodes. I have no idea if Big Sky has begun to take any of those things more or less seriously because I stopped watching Big Sky because it was unbearable. Uh, But that I thought was a horrible way to treat an actual important story. Here, it's just not the best way, and Alaska Daily ends up being a largely forgettable show. Um, I haven't watched Dairy Girls yet, but I'm looking forward to it. That's totally my weekend, is to try to find time to watch Dairy Girls, because Dairy Girls is fantastic. And Netflix doesn't really care so much about the domestic release of Dairy Girls. I don't believe they sent it to critics up front. I think if you requested it, they might have given it to you, but they didn't just send out screeners. And that's okay, because I'm happy to have things to look forward to. Uh, You mentioned A Friend of the Family on Peacock and the first handful of episodes, I believe four have already premiered. They they changed the release strategy on that one like last week. Uh, But it's the exact same story as uh, Abducted in Plain Sight, which was a really bad documentary that premiered on Netflix in 2019 and that a lot of people watched for about a week. Uh, Definitely was a kind of word of mouth hit. For, for Netflix, and and while I think it is a horribly made documentary, I understand why people got caught up in it, because it is a crazy story. It's a 70s set story about a um, about a Mormon family and a 12-year-old girl who two times in, uh, in two years gets abducted by a friend of the family who was a sexual predator, and the ways in which she was abducted he convinced her that she was part of a conspiracy to save an alien planet. There are a lot of very weird things to the story, and I understand why people were intrigued by the story, even though the documentary really and truly is, is garbage. But, um, you know, these things happen. Uh, and the series is created by uh, Nick Antoska, who has been doing a lot of true crime stuff lately uh he started off with channel z on on sify but um he did the act on hulu he did candy on hulu so he kind of has this mo where he takes sensationalistic stories and kind of slows them down and tries to find the human side and that's what this is and when i saw that this was being done in nine hours and the documentary is 91 minutes and the documentary already felt interminable to me, at least I I was terrified and I'm going to be honest. There's no justifying this as a nine episode series. It's just bad development. I don't, I don't know how you look at a pitch for a nine episode version of this series and don't say try it in six (laughs) or hell, try it in four, but let's just say, try it in six. Uh, so I've seen and I've seen six episodes and these six episodes are already too padded as is. Uh, but there there are some very, very good performances here. You have Jake Lacey as the the sexual predator. And it's a very, very good use of of Jake Lacey because the character is a, a sociopath. And I am not saying that Jake Lacey is a sociopath. But what I am saying is that Jake Lacey is very, very good at either playing I said this in my review, either the most decent person in the room or the most demented person in a room. And if you can find some way to let him play both of those things at once, it's a good use of the things that Jake Lacey does well. Uh, You also have um, you have Anna Paquin, who's very, very good as the mother of the girl who gets abducted. You have Leo Tipton, uh, who was Always so one of my favorites uh, from America's Next Top Model way back in the day. And they're a very good actor. Um, and I, I think that's a, a performance that's much better than the writing necessarily would justify. You have Colin Hanks as the father of the girl who gets abducted. And he's, for some reason... They, I just don't know why you cast Colin Hanks in a role where you're going to have to put him under ridiculous makeup for nine episodes, and it's just distracting top to bottom. But both of the young actresses who play uh, Jan Broberg, the girl who was abducted, are, are fantastic. Uh, Hendrix Antsi, who plays the part for the first four episodes, I think, um, it, she's phenomenal. She, it's, it's just a great performance. It is so It is so natural and so quiet in a sensationalistic situation. So she's kind of the personification of the Nick, Nick Antosca, um, model. And then you have McKenna Grace, who a lot of people will know from um, Handmaid's Tale and the Lifetime remake of Bad Seed and stuff. It takes over the role at a certain point. And she's also very good, though. I've only seen part of uh, what she does. Uh, look, this was better than I feared it was going to be because I thought it was going to be interminable after, Like 91 minutes, Uh, but it definitely by the end of six episodes, I don't need to watch another three. There's just nothing that there's nothing here that I'm going to be engaged by. I don't know if that's going to be the case for everybody or not, Um, but. Who knows? Along those lines, I'm not watching another Jeffrey Dahmer show on Netflix. Sorry, (laughs) this is this one is documentary. And it's I believe it's another of the Joe Berlinger serial killer documentary series. And I just don't need to uh, do that. I think that Let the Right One In is interesting. And I think it's I think it's interesting because it fascinates me that this property has somehow become almost a 21st century Shakespeare where you can keep making it and making it and making it. You, I'm not going to uh, be able to pronounce the name of the Swedish author, uh, John Linquist. It's his middle name that causes the problem. Ivid, John Ivid Lindquist. That might be his name. Uh, anyway, it's a great book. Uh, it, it really is. And it's, and it's a book that's worth checking out if you've watched the original Swedish movie, which is also a great movie. uh, Or if you've watched Let Me In, the Matt Reeves American remake, which is a surprisingly good movie. It's it's one of those movies where you think, okay, there's absolutely no reason to remake Let the Right One In because the Swedish movie was a masterpiece. It is one of the great horror movies of the past 20 years. And Let Me In is just a really good movie. It uh, It does a few things different, a lot of things the same but equally effectively. And even knowing every plot point that was coming, I, I found the remake to be completely compelling. And so, you know, I've read the book and several of Link other books. He's, he's a very good writer uh, and seen both the movies. And I also then, I guess, nine years ago in in London, saw a West End theatrical production of it. And it was really, really good. And so like at this point i'm totally game for people attempting to keep telling this story provided they have interesting things to say and this one is created by andrew hinderaker and he has some interesting things to say but it's a a fundamentally safe version of the story and if anyone has read the book and seen the other two movies you know it's not really supposed to be safe um the the core relationship between the young vampire child and and seemingly paternal figure at the story's center is a really, really messed up relationship. And it's a really messed up relationship that has gotten increasingly less messed up in every version of the story that anyone has done. So you, you see a lot of elements of it in the Swedish film. You see some elements of it in the American remake, and then they're all gone in this. Uh, in, in this version, which is just inspired by the book, you have a father and a daughter straight up. And the father is played by Demian Bashir, who is fantastic, as always. He is a great actor. And the uh, the daughter is played by Madison taylor Um, and she's also very, very good. And basically... They play a father and daughter, and the daughter needs to eat, needs to drink blood to survive because she's a vampire. Uh, and they've been traveling around for a decade. And again, people will notice that is a major shift from the book. Uh, trying to find basically a, a source, trying to find a cure, and so rather than being a kind of messed up and almost indescribable relationship, it's a father-daughter relationship. And to me, that is both. Emotionally resonant and relatable, but also not in any way messed up enough to, to give me the things that I want in, in this story. But it still is resonant, and a lot of the very best moments— still really do come from the source material. So it's not going far afield on everything. And so there are specific moments tied to familiar things from this franchise, like what happens if uh, if the main vampire character is in a house that she hasn't been invited into. And it's, you know, it's the most memorable moment in both of the other adaptations. Uh, and here it also is. Um, And so you've you've got the the decent solid core that is both less twisted than the original, but has its merits. But then the story has been diffused, and it has to be because it is a television series, and therefore it can't just be done in two hours. And so at the same time, you have basically they, they come to New York for reasons related to a series of murders that may relate to another vampire or not. Um, And then they happen to move into an apartment complex directly next door to the homicide detective who's investigating those murders. That that is a rather large uh, coincidence that the entire thing hinges on. And that uh, that detective is played by Anika Nani Rose, who is always very good in things. Uh, She has a young son who is being bullied, played by also the very good Ian Foreman. And uh, so a friendship develops between the young vampire girl and the young boy. And then you have yet another storyline that involves Grace Gummer, Jelko Avonik, and uh, Nick Stahl, who hasn't been in a role this high profile for a long time. He's been very public about his battles with addiction. And it's a role in which he's playing a recovering addict. And so there's, there's really good and emotional undertones there. He, he's really good. I don't like anything about that storyline, which is kind of, dope sick like light rather it's it's Sackler-esque uh but Nick Stahl it's good to see him acting in things because he was really good in things and he was gone for a while um and so I hope he is well and I'm glad to see him getting this opportunity so I on one hand there was a lot here that disappointed me and a lot of choices that perplexed me but on the other hand I think that was just because of where my ex or I think that was at least in part because of where my expectations are and so I found a lot interesting about going through the changes they were making and the alterations and all of that. I can't begin to imagine how this plays if you don't know uh, either of the movies, the book, the play, etc. You know, maybe it plays fantastically. I I simply don't know. Uh, It plays interestingly, sometimes compellingly, sometimes disappointingly, not wholly successfully in this form, but I was still interested by all of the choices and going along with them, even if I was scratching my head. So I, I think it's worth checking out. And I, I think I would be curious to hear from some people how this plays if you have never watched or read anything Let the Right One In, related. But I would also tell people it's a really, really good book. Um and both of the two movies are are terrific, particularly the Swedish movie, which is uh which is totally top tier. Um so Yeah, I I believe those are those are the things. I I don't know if there's a thing that people need to watch. I mean, I'm going to watch Dairy Girls and I'm going to assume that it is charming and hilarious and requires subtitles like the two previous seasons. But I I haven't watched, so I don't know. Uh, Let the Right One In on Showtime is is interesting. Not always successful, but full of ideas. And I can applaud things that are full of ideas. Uh, Six episodes of Friend of the Family on Peacock was more than I needed, and it's going to go on for another three episodes. But also, some people like Abducted in Plain Sight more than I do. And Alaska Daily is both better than some broadcast dramas this year, like Monarch or So Help Me Todd, but also really just not necessary. So, I think that's what we got.
0: Yeah, and you forgot the best show on all of television, Dan.
2: Um... I I believe you are probably referring to the Major League Baseball playoffs. Is that what you are referring to,
0: Leslie? 100%. Postseason baseball starts Friday night with the Wild Card Series. New format this year. I'm excited. Just praying that the Padres don't make it. So yuck. Manny Machado. (laughs) Suck it, Johnny Hustle. That's all the baseball that we've got this week. As usual, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, The Hollywood Reporters TV podcast.
2: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers do help spread the word of mouth, and we read them. If you, you want us to, you know, read things more immediately, we're always happy to hear from you guys on Twitter. Come say hi. Let us know what's working, what isn't working. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's Top 5 the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until
0: next week, Dan. Go Dodgers!
3: 18 plus.